This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Rebecca Huntley with you for the History Listen. You may not have heard of the Noids Archipelago, a group of islands off Ceduna on the far west coast of South Australia. But that's where we're taking you today, for stories of explorers, whalers, abductions, skeletons and sea chests, and Gulliver's travels as well. They rode about a league and then set me down on a strand. I desired them to tell me what country it was. They all swore they knew no more than myself. The Noitz Archipelago was first mapped by the Dutch in 1627, and two of the real islands, St Peter and St Francis, appear in the fictional charts in Jonathan Swift's famous satire, Gulliver's Travels. The Noitz Archipelago is rich in both myth and history. Producer Mike Ladd is our guide. Flying into Ceduna, I get my first glimpse of the Noitz Archipelago. Franklin and St Francis Islands hazy in the distance. Closer up, St Peter, which looks like a giant stingray, its flat, broad head pointing to sea, whiplash tail aiming at the land. Once part of the mainland, the 19 islands of the Noitz Archipelago were formed by rising seawaters at the end of the last ice age. Go back 9,800 years, the coastline of South Australia would have been beyond the St Francis group of islands. And 7,700 years ago, you would have been able to walk from the mainland across to Goat Island and St Peter's. That's Perry Will, charter boat operator and current mayor of Ceduna. Isolation thousands of years ago protected populations of creatures that have disappeared from the mainland. And these days, the whole archipelago is a conservation park. A lot of the animals that were on St Peter's Island, for instance, were on the mainland until the Europeans let cats go. Betongs and bandicoots, you rarely see them on the mainland these days. So uh, Franklin Islands, uh, they are the last uh, natural remaining refuge of the greater Stickness rat. And we've re-released them now onto St Peter's. The, the Stickness rats now are in quite good numbers. In fact, uh, when we had our troop carrier out, we were doing tours on St Peter's Island. Uh, we, we used to have to, before we started the trip, we had to open the, the bonnet of the engine and pull all the sticks and pull the nest because the, the stick nest rat made its um, nest in the bloody motor canopy of the, of the troop carrier. So. <laughs> the Noitz Archipelago is also the subject of the far west coast native title sea claim of the Kukuta, Murining and Wirungu. Thousands of years ago, indigenous people may well have occupied these islands when they were still connected to the mainland. Yeah, I'm not sure. Some of the Aboriginals think that way. Most of the Aboriginal folk that I've taken from this area refer to as taboo. Like, as soon as we get out there, they're wanting to come home again. There's something about the area that they're not real keen on. Maybe it's the memories of rape, abduction and slavery. 
because Aboriginal women certainly were on the islands, taken by force by whalers and sealers. To obtain the lubras, they did not hesitate to shoot any of the male blacks who ventured to resist them. How native women fared under the rule of the early settlers may be seen from the case of two, named Charlotte and Sally, the companions of a sealer named Bryant, who had made a home for himself on St Peter's Island off the Nile Bay, one of the clusters of islands called Noit's Archipelago by Flinders. There he had built a hut and made a small farm, supplying himself with such stores as he required by bartering fruit and vegetables for them with the American whaling ships which occasionally put in for water, etc. The women had to do all the hard work of the establishment, but otherwise were not badly treated. Death having carried him off suddenly, they were left in the possession of his property, and they went on with work as usual. Each of them had two half-caste children, and probably neither had any wish to quit their home. While they were rejoicing in their unexpected freedom, a whaleboat dropped anchor in the cove at the head of which the farm was situated. A number of men landed and made their way up. They were one of the Kangaroo Island gangs, led by John Williams, who was notorious for his devilry. Being in want of provisions, they did not scruple to plunder the place, and when they left, they carried off the two women. They sailed away to King George Sound, but after a time, returned to St Peter's where they left the women. G.B. Barton, The Australian, 5th of November, 1902. Charlotte and her children were later abducted again by sealers. Their boat sank and the sealers and children drowned. But Charlotte swam ashore to tell the sorry tale. These and other histories can be found in the wonderfully eccentric Sejuna Museum. I want to show you uh, an item I found out at St Peter's Island. I was in about knee depth water. Just a dark, very dark rock, but there's two or three man-made grooves in the back. I thought for the start it was probably some primitive tool. Uh, I took it to the South Australian Museum and uh, they tried to identify it. Well, they believed that it was ballast used in the whaling boats when they come back from America. That's Alan Lowe, the museum's curator and chief collector. Before the whalers went out to the Noitz Archipelago, they had a base on the mainland at Streaky Bay. They were hunting southern right whales, which were harpooned, dragged up onto the rocks, flensed and boiled down to oil in foul-smelling smoky tripods. In 1846, the Streaky Bay station produced more oil than the mothership could carry. On one occasion, they had more than a shipload to go back to a company in Tasmania was actually operating it. And then they had to leave a few men there to guard the spare oil. The men were Cape Jack, Long Jim and Michael Sinnott. They were attacked by the Aborigines. Uh, one guy got speared on the mainland. That was the end of Michael Sinnott, who'd gone to steal an Aboriginal woman. The Wirringu had had enough of their young women being abducted and their water sources being monopolised by the whalers and sealers. Another one got a spear through his hand. He died of 
blood poisoning soon after. That was Cape Jack. He and Long Jim had got into a whaleboat and escaped to Franklin Island. And the third guy managed to live there for a while, until I suppose he ran out of food and tucker. And on his deathbed, he uh, used his blood in the sailcloth to write a message of what actually happened. Well, the last words of Long Jim were actually written in pencil. But history's like that. Stories get romanticised, confused, downright fictionalised. The late maritime historian Terry Arnott made it his mission to track down the original paperwork. In November 1848, the cutter Jane Flaxman called into Franklin Island during an expedition of discovery. This was when the bones of a human being, most likely Long Jim, were discovered with the pencilled message written on a scrap of paper. A letter to the colonial secretary in December 1848 describes exactly what was found on the island. Sir, I have the honour to enclose herewith three scraps which were picked up by a Mr Thomas on a recent visit to Franklin's Island. He saw the bones of a human being, very probably those of the writer of the pencilled document, a chest with some clothing, the weather-worn remnants of a shed, apparently composed of sails, a boat on the beach, much too large for any one individual to remove, and a dog, in excellent condition, which latter he was desirous of bringing away, but could not secure. No fresh water could be discovered by him on the island. The three scraps of paper from Cape Jack's sea chest are still held in State Records SA. They were a certificate of freedom from Van Diemen's Land for the ex-convict Michael Sinnott, an earlier letter from Cape Jack saying he expected to be back in Hobart in four to six weeks, and these final, lonely, misspelt words from Long Jim. Michael Sennett left in the afternoon about four o'clock. He got me to make a damper to take with him. He said he was going to get a black woman and he would be home by night. But he has never returned, which makes me think they've killed him. Some of them stole Cape Jack's hat from the back of the hut, so we would not give them more flour. So they gathered a mob and speared Cape Jack through the hand and we was forced to take to the boat. We got a bit of flour and some sugar and our bedding and Cape Jack's box. We went over to Franklin's Island, thinking we should see the vessel in sight when she came. Cape Jack's hand has been very bad ever since we came. I buried him as well as I could, and now he is in heaven. God bless him. He has left me and the poor dog by our two selves. I hope we'll send vessel or a boat to save us from dying here. So according to this, that means Cape Jack is still buried on Franklin Island somewhere. That's right. Did they ever find his grave? No, I don't know. (laughs) So his bones could still be out there, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Unless the dog ate them. (laughs) Archipelago with senior parks ranger Robbie Sleep. So tell us where we're going, Robbie.
St Peter and St Francis Islands were named after the patron saints of Dutch East India Company trader Peter Noyce and his captain, Francois Tyson, when their ship, the Golden Seahorse, reached these waters in 1627. It was at that time the farthest any European had been on the so-called unknown coast of southern Australia. The prevailing wisdom is that the Golden Seahorse had been blown off course on its way from the Netherlands to their main outpost of Batavia, modern-day Jakarta. But Perry Will has another theory. Ten years ago, some of the Noitz family came back and I actually took Francois and Jake Noitz um, out to St Peter's Island to show them. And I sort of feel from talking to the Noitz people, because they've obviously researched their family a bit, that these people were adventurers. They were part of the East India Company and the company had rewarded anyone that sort of found new resources for them and I think that, that Noitz and Tyson had obviously hatched a plan and they did have some inkling there was something down this way and they sailed along the coast seeing if they could actually find new resources. These guys didn't do it by mistake, they were actually looking for this, you know, what was down this area. That would make sense because in 1622, the Governor-General of the Dutch East India Company issued an order to explore the Great South Land where possible, and Noitz would have been aware of this. Also, the map of the south coast of Australia made on the Golden Seahorse voyage was surprisingly accurate, hardly the mark of a lost and panicky crew. Whatever the story, the Great Australian Bight in summer didn't look too appealing to the Dutch, and they did a big U-turn, sailing back west, then north, arriving in Batavia two months later. After his Australian voyage, Noitz was appointed Dutch East India Governor of Taiwan and Ambassador to Japan. He had a wild tenure involving spies, hostages, concubines, fraud and general mayhem. He was put under house arrest by the Shogun before being recalled to the Netherlands, where, despite his disgrace, he lived out his days as a small-town mayor. Noitz's map showing St Peter and St Francis Islands was incorporated into the Hollandia Nova map of 1644, and then into Herman Mole's new and complete map of the whole world, published in 1719. Mole's map was used in turn by the publisher of Gulliver's Travels to illustrate each chapter adding the fictional lands to the real coastlines. St Peter and St Francis appear in Chapter 4 when Gulliver visits the land of the Huanims, the intelligent horses and their revolting beasts of burden, the hairy and human-like yahoos. As to those filthy yahoos, I confess I never saw any sensitive being so detestable on all accounts, and the more I came near them, the more hateful they grew while I stayed in that country. This the master horse observed by my behaviour, and therefore sent the yahoo back to his kennel. About noon I saw coming towards the house a kind of vehicle, drawn like a sledge by four yahoos. There was in it an old steed, who seemed to be of quality. He came to dine with our horse, who received him with great civility. They dined in the best room and had oats boiled in milk for the second course. 
As far as we know, the Noitz Archipelago had no human visitors for the next 175 years. Matthew Flinders had a look around in 1802 and named the archipelago after Noitz. In 1803, Baudin's expedition arrived and three scientists explored St Peter, the artist and bird collector Le Sieur, botanist Le Chineau de la Tour and naturalist Francois Perron. They used to get dressed in their full regalia and get in these longboats and they came to St Peter's Island and went in to what we call uh, Bog Bay here at the moment. A lot of maps it's called Bob Bay, but it, uh, it's got like quicksand in them and you sink down in this black mud up to your neck. Well, apparently Perron went to go ashore there and stepped ashore in his full regalia and sunk down to his neck just about. And by the way, Perron and Baudin couldn't stand each other. The crew told Baudin the story, and of course he's written in his log here, I wish the bastard drowns. <laughs> He obviously didn't like Perron, and I mean Perron screwed him in him because I think that Baudin got left in Mauritius and Perron went back and tried to take all the, the credit for everything they'd found and done. Perron also wrote a secret report about how the French could invade Port Jackson and take over Australia. But that's a story we don't have time for now because we've arrived at St Peter Island. Coming along for the ride is Murray Collins, who grazed sheep on the island in the 1970s before it became part of the Noitz Conservation Park. Well, it's good to be back after 40 odd years. <laughs> well, I made them myself. We're out fishing one day, we decided to come ashore at uh, Mount Young Husband, which is the highest point in the, the island. We walked up there and uh, looked over the island. We thought well, it wouldn't be good fun to, to buy this island and they run a few sheep there. So I went into the hotel next Saturday morning and approached the old bloke who had it, old Dutchie Thistleton, and put it to him that we could buy the island. On the following Saturday morning, same place, same time, he agreed to do it. We shook hands on the job, and for $20,000, believe it or not, and uh, took the job on. It was pretty rough going. The previous owner had it for 27 years and didn't do anything with it and uh, there's a lot of wild bush and stuff and the sheep were very hard to muster. We burnt it and the whole place went off like a bomb and cleaned it up and it was a lot easier to muster after that. We had a freshwater spring on the back of the island, which is a bit unusual, but it was pretty reliable. It only made about 400 gallons a day and acted as a, a good drinking source. So what made you give up farming on the island? Oh, I just got sick of it and finished it. I lasted six or seven years and we weren't making any money up anyway, there'd better things to do. The fun had gone out of it. And my mate, John Nichols, uh, he hung in for another three years and he bailed out. What not the economical run sheep, oil prices and the cost of running the operation. Uh, so to take a jerry can of fuel out, had to handle it probably five, six, seven times by the time we took it from the farm to the boat, the boat, boat into the jeep, jeep up the house, unloaded again. Uh, everything had to be manhandled, handled, you know, seven or eight times. And it got a bit bloody tiresome after a while. St Peter and St Francis are the two islands in the archipelago where generations of families farm. By an amazing coincidence, on the same day we've arrived on St Peter, charter boat operator Periwill has brought out the three Clark sisters, Barbara Hosson, Jennifer Collins and Beverly Dennison, whose father lived and worked on the island in the 1930s. 
Ah, it's an old eroded chain. Yeah. Wow. And a, it looks like a knotty piece of wood now, doesn't it? It would have been a pretty solid chain. And a bit oh, more here, it? look. Yeah. Yes. Makes you wonder how it survived, even to look like that. Yeah. So how does it feel to be back on uh, oh. your uh, your ancestors? It's sad, actually. Does it? Is this the first time you've been here? Yeah. Wow. We've been talking about it for about ten years. Yeah. Quite emotional. We look through the ruins of the old Clark house on the beach. Some stonework, the remnants of an iron stove. William Henry Clark, the women's grandfather, bought St Peter Island in 1925. His unpublished memoir paints the portrait of an intrepid entrepreneurial man bursting with energy. He bought a ketch in Port Adelaide and bluffed his way into getting a captain's licence, even though he had almost no sailing experience. We loaded about 150 tonnes of cargo, then I employed three young men to help me bring it from Port Adelaide to Sejuna, a distance of 700 miles by sea. I could write a book on that trip, it was winter time and the seas were very rough with the winds against us all the way. I remember I had a lot of gel ignite on board. I also had a lot of cases of detonators under my bed. I was always afraid of these in a very rough sea for they would slide all over the floor. He and his family stocked the island with sheep and grew wheat, oats and barley. An engineer by trade, he also established a motor garage, iceworks and butter factory at Sejuna with a sideline manufacturing ice cream and cool drinks. There were many setbacks, shipwrecks, the depression. A thousand sheep drowned when they wandered out onto a sandbar and were caught in the incoming tide, their bleached corpses washing up on the mainland. We found the whole beach for about three miles covered with sheep. They were all washed as white as snow. They'd been in the sea a long time, I think there was somewhere in the vicinity of a thousand sheep. We went back to Sejuna and engaged every man that could skin a sheep to go down and skin those sheep as quickly as they could. But autobiographies can often paint a glowing picture of their subject. And the Clark sisters tell me another side of the story concerning their grandmother, Annie Jane Smith, William Henry Clark's first wife. Uh, she had a very sad life. Our father was the last child she had with William Henry, our pop, as we called him. And when our father was six weeks old, she was taken to an asylum in Ballarat. And she stayed there until she passed away in 1958. Uh, she had no visitors. Our father was told that she had died when he was born and he found out six months before she died that she was still alive and that affected him greatly. And was it probably just something like postnatal depression or we something? We think that's what it could have been. With his first wife walled up in the asylum, Clark then got a 15-year-old girl pregnant, Jean Ann Morrison, and married her. 
He was 32. Right. The right. children from the first marriage raised right. the, the children from the, from second, the second marriage. marriage. While Clark was on the mainland looking after his business interests, he left his 16-year-old daughter Alice and 14-year-old son William Walter to run the farm on St Peter Island. The stories Dad told us only ever related to uh, running the sheep and all that involved. Uh, he and Alice broke in their own horses that were running wild here on the island um, and he told us of how he and Alice used to being kids really, young teenagers mm. here on their own, they'd have races down the beach and I remember Dad saying at one stage he and Alice were neck and neck on their horses and with that there was a snake stretched out across the beach and Dad's horse just reared up and Dad bit the sand. And so were they pretty much fending for themselves? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yes. Right. They brought food over but of course you didn't know how long they'd be here and how long the food would last. So only Alice... Uh, she was the one with the gun and she used to shoot the parakeets and anything else and I presume they caught fish here, I don't know, but one of the trips out, the it was in a storm and the, the mast went through the bottom of the boat so they had to get the kerosene drums, they emptied out two, one bailed and one steered then they'd swap over and Pop never came back for three months to see if they were still alive. We head on up the beach, looking at remnants of the whaling station. You see it there, how it's just a dry stone wall they put there as a shelter. You said they drape it with uh, seal skins, Like a, an oil skin of some sort, yeah, whether it was seal skin or what they used. And there was nothing of evidence here they ever had any other sort of roof on it than something like that. But you can see the, you know, the, the deeper water with the tide right out now, you could float a whale into this area and cut it up and boil it up. and. Yeah. And the, the barrels of oil, they'd roll down the beach to this cave I'll try and find on the way back now. Yeah. Second time in my life has happened, we've walked past and not, not seen it. So. Oh. But you can mm. see it's quite a, you know, they just put some effort into building and consider it would have probably had four walls like Turning inland, we find some bones on the sandy track. Murray, you reckon these are horse bones, do you? Well, big one there's got to be. Yeah. I do think they'd last that long, but they've probably been under the sand. Yeah. See, these here are quite weathered. There. That one's probably come out of the sand that's been preserved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's, life, isn't it? it's a big bone, it looks yeah. like a femur. So, you reckon it's uh, descendants of the wild horses? There's that that no other horses out here, but been out of here, so. Yeah. Must be, just, must, be, must be just blown out the sand and come out. Yeah. It's such amazing. Yeah. Clark's memoir mentions finding wild horses on St Peter probably left over from some earlier settlers' ploughing team. I forgot to tell you how we shifted about 12 wild horses from the island to the mainland. These horses had to be yarded and broken into the saddle. This was some job because it took good horsemen to get them into an enclosure. Then a man with a lasso would lasso one of the wild horses, all hands would catch hold of the rope and gradually choke the horse until it lay down for want of breath. Interesting that near here was Gulliver's fictional island of the Huanims, those wise and gentle horses who governed with reason and even wrote poetry, contrasted with the ugly and violent humans, the Yahoos. 
As these noble huinims are endowed by nature with a general disposition to all virtues, and have no conceptions or ideas of what is evil in a rational creature, so their grand maxim is to cultivate reason, and to be wholly governed by it. By what I could discover, the yahoos appear to be the most unteachable of all animals, their capacities never reaching higher than to draw or carry burdens. They are strong and hardy, but of a cowardly spirit, and by consequence, insolent, abject, and cruel. Periwheel takes the Clark sisters back to the mainland, and Murray Collins, Ranger Robbie Sleep and I prepare for a night on St Peter Island, spotting stick-nest rats and brush-tailed bettongs. We just put out a little bit of peanut paste, um, just to see if we can attract in a couple of uh, bettongs, which we've done pretty easily. And uh, yeah, we've got three or four here now. Yeah, hop like a kangaroo. Not what you expect to see, are they? No. Small kangaroo with a uh, yeah, big long tail, fluffy tail. Yeah. So this Probably is the size the of a rabbit, really, except yeah. on their back legs. Yeah. So this is the brush-tailed bettong. Yep. Yep. Mm. They're not, not silly. They've just never been trained to yeah. have fear. That's the yeah, thing. they're not really afraid of us, are they? No, it's not coming at all. right up here. Not at all. Just hopping around and. Yep. Yeah, look, he's coming up to your boot. St Peter is now part of the Noitz Archipelago Conservation Park. It was declared a conservation park in 1988, purchased off the, uh, off the Williams family. I think they paid about $110,000 for it, which seems like a pretty good investment nowadays. It was the last island, as far as I know, in the Noitz Archipelago that became a national park. With its absence of cats and foxes, it's the home of successful breeding programs for both brush-tailed bettongs and stick-nest rats. Extinct on the mainland, the vegetarian, communal house-building stick-nest rats had only one population left in the world, on the Franklin Islands, next door to St Peter. Yeah, so originally there was uh, about 153 stick-nest rats placed on the island over, I think there were six occasions that they were introduced. Uh, all descendants from the Franklins, so really good quality ge genetics. And then I think there's about 143 bedongs that were released on the island. And uh, yeah, they're, they're all going really well. Just as a guesstimate, I mean, how many do you think you've got now in St. Peter? It's quite possible there's four and a half to five thousand of both species on the island. So that's an incredible outcome. I don't know what it costs a year, but I'd say it's less than $5,000 to look after this this place and a lot of that's around um, park infrastructure, the house and uh, vehicle maintenance and things like that. So I think it's a real good in, good return for investment here. It's a great, beautiful place. I love, I've loved growing up here and I'm loving working here. The next day, as we prepare to leave the island, 80-year-old Murray Collins takes a last long look back at the shore. Yeah, sometimes when you go to Adelaide and you get up on the plane, look at it and you look down and you see the island, you get a twins, you think, well, gee, I wish I still had it. But I think it's in the right hands today, the National Park.
And that was Tales from the Noitz Archipelago. Our readers were Chris Pittman and Mark Saturno. The sound engineer was Tom Henry. And the production was by Mike Ladd. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next time on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.